Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth. And with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Aaron. Say hi. Hello there. Hello. Oh, I missed the Kenobi joke, didn't I? You, you say oh, well. you say you don't need to. You don't need you say, to say it. You say all right, joke. Kenobi reference, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Back to normal. Normal operation. You have to say if you say it every time. I know. It takes the same amount of time, and then you like you'd have to say like you'd have to respond to Drew's oh hi like every time as well. <laughs> it's not intentional, believe me. <laughs> and Drew, say hi. Oh hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> well there you go we've made it at least a minute into uh, this week's recording and we've all already. already lost it <laughs> well what have you two been up to well i was wrecking my brains trying to think but yes yeah, so we we had a um, hummingbird hawk moth in the garden i know it's the Very second nice. time the old hummingbird hawk moth has come up but you know i think they deserve it and uh we've had some bats around the barn that we live near as well. So that was. Do you know what good. species I they were? No idea what species they were. I couldn't yeah. tell you. They were quite small, um, but I couldn't tell you. They're pretty fast moving. Ah, they move quickly, and they don't say well, anything. They... they don't tell you. <laughs> they don't scream. Their they name don't scream their own names like a Pokemon. No. <laughs> were they accompanied by like little birds with red chests that were probably too underage to actually be involved in any violence? You're making what? a Batman what? joke. Well, well done, Gareth. Oh, right, well okay. done. Wow, that was <laughs> quite an obvious reference. <laughs> Not really. They went Dear listeners, if you manage oh, to on. understand that reference, Sorry. Uh, to that let was, us know. That was one of my least obscure references I've ever made. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, there we yeah, go. But you make a DC reference for me, and it's it would just go straight over my head. Even one is obvious, which is criminal because their history is so much better than. I say this as a huge Marvel fanboy, but their history is much better than Marvel. We're getting off topic. Come on. Yeah. Anyway, what? Yeah. What what have you been doing? Well, I can. I I noticed that it was um, uh, World Elephant Day on Friday, and Mm. so I naturally did nothing. And then on Saturday, I noticed (laughs) it was International Wolf Awareness Day, so naturally, I did nothing. You mean Um, you weren't aware of wolves? I was not aware of wolves. I am now. Apparently, they're like big, great dogs ah. from the northern hemisphere. Yeah, um, very spiritual. I saw yeah. lots of common frogs. Oh, cool. yeah. That was because we've been trying to sort out the garden in the back. And we've been in there getting rid of some of the weeds. And I've been chopping up some of the wood. And we just accidentally disturbed a, a load of froglets. Or she accidentally disturbed a load of froglets. And then she very kindly showed me a um, an adult one in the old duck pond that we used to have the, the ducks that we used to have oh very cool very oh. exciting I, I like seeing frogs well you two already know what i i got up to and in fact listeners um you would also be aware because i made it a facebook live thing i thought for for once we'd we'd actually get some sort of grandiose wildlife moment recorded live for uh you the uh, the listeners to to be able to watch on our facebook page you got a lovely view of the river otter but that's about it. Although what you didn't see was after the signal dropped out and I sat up and... You fell in. No. I mean, it would have been 
quite hard to fall in the water. It's it's very very shallow where I was. Loads yeah, of fish. You're often very drunk. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> totally. I'm drunk right now. It's the only way I can recite these. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. Drunk. Is it the only way you can tolerate the planet at the moment? Yes, is being. Comp- I'm I'm basically Jeff Goldblum in the end, in that sort of mid scene in in the middle of Independence Day. I'm wandering around, smashing things up. Anyway, there's an obscure reference for you. There you go. So anyway, when I, after getting up and sort of propping myself against the tree because I had pins and needles from sitting down in this rather muddy puddle uh, almost for half an hour or so, I decided to call my wife and just see how she was doing, just let her know how little things were happening down on the river. And the exact moment that I was on the phone to her, what happened? Two kingfishers fly straight past, land on the uh, the perch, sit there in the the sort of moment of me scrambling to say, uh, there's kingfishers and they hang up. Um, did they laugh they, like kookaburras? Well, they bet you they did, because by the time I'd even been able to hang up the phone, they were gone. And that was it. I didn't see them again for the rest of the time there. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, dear listeners, you, um, you, you missed out on that purely by me bothering to take a phone call and standing up. So uh, I can only apologize. I'll try again in the future. Didn't even get to see any otters or any beavers, but it turns out every other person I know who went down that, on that river within a day of me doing that saw both beavers and otters. So I'm thoroughly jealous of literally everyone who went down on the river. But you win some, you lose some, and in my case, you lose them all. Uh, uh, how about what happened in Norway, I think, today or yesterday? Yeah. Freya the walrus being killed because she's been labelled a public health concern because oh. the public are being a health concern to her and like badgering her to such yeah. a degree yeah. that she's it's now not... become a bit of a pest. So it's another the Wally the walrus situation, except ended yeah. in a much, much ended sadder in, way. In tragedy, yeah, because people wouldn't stop pestering her and then, and then you know, they become acclimatised to that tension. They, yeah. Now, Warwick has now lost its life because people can't leave wildlife well enough alone, just enjoy it from a distance. It seems it's been a, a rather bad week for marine uh, mammals because the uh, the beluga that was up the Seine uh, in France also oh, yeah. um, also died. But I mean, that that's a species of, of whale that can actually tolerate that sort of extreme salt and uh, freshwater yes. situation, but it can't tolerate the temperatures Northern Europe has currently been undergoing. Um, so that's probably one of the things that helped to stress it out to that point, I'm guessing. And speaking of bad week for uh, marine mammals, have you seen the, because people are bored and have nothing better to do with their lives, some journalist whose speciality has nothing to do with natural history, conservation or zoology or anything related to Oh, this is going to be good. Has uh, taken to writing an article, probably because, again, she had nothing interesting to write about, slate in sea world about something that happened a few years ago and it's such an obvious agenda-driven article it's like oh no one's been publicly slating sea world for a while i think i might grind my axe a little bit about them well um, never so let facts get in the way of opinion no and i think it's worth pointing out that sea world does more for conservation before we've all had breakfast than any of us are going to do and achieve in our entire lifetime so uh mm. yeah anyway so she- we're starting to drift here with the current we are drifting into the uh the world of news 
So um, should we embrace the tide? I'm going with this nautical theme here. Uh, should we embrace the tide and, and let it pull us towards the inevitable rocks of, of the news section? It's the news! Right, well, like I say, we've, we've steered with the tides. We are now into the... Uh, the inland sea of news, and the the first island coming up is for Aaron. What news inhabits this island? I'm really going hard with this theme here. <laughs> you can keep it going for your article because this I will. This yeah. one's definitely got nothing to do. With, I'm certain that mine has nothing to do with the sea. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I'm certain. As my article, my headline is: COVID scientists pinpoint exact location pandemic started in bombshell studies. So obviously this is the news that we now have a concrete point on the map at which we can say this is where the pandemic started as best as we are in. And it's not in the sea. It's not in the sea. Uh, Anyway, this is obviously this has been a hotly debated and widely fought over subject that is almost as infuriating as it is entertaining to watch people try and battle conspiracy theorists with with science, which is never going to win. But With more learned people pondering the many reasons COVID-19 could have started, we're bound to find out at some point. Even as the conspiracy nuts scream about labs and some global conspiracy by governments across the planet who at any other time can't tolerate each other, coming together over refreshment selections to uh, inexplicably come up with a virus for us all. Uh, So the kind of conspiracies that are easily debunked comes from an arse backward way of thinking to be quite honest but anyway there are several articles on this subject so i'm not gonna isolate any particular one because they all kind of cover the same information and i've picked out bits that are missed from others to make sure the important points come across but essentially the articles give you a recap in case you got lost in space sucked into the more of the kessel run or somehow have no clue as to what has happened over the last two years um and what we've been dealing with. Uh, But they then go on to cover the existence of two peer-reviewed papers detailing the painstaking research that has gone into finding out the whereabouts of this pandemic's origin point. And as it turns out, and as most of us figured, it came from a wet market in China, not from a a lab leak. Shock horror. Indeed, the papers, which can both be found in the long-running journal Science, Uh, Both point to the Huanan seafood wholesale market in Wuhan, China. Uh, This is now considered the early epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic, where first cases of the virus in humans emerged in 2019. Gareth will probably remember that it was around that time that we approached certain people and were (laughs) laughed out of a certain building for saying that it would come over to to the UK. Yeah, well, you know. Happy times. We're, let's not get distracted by it or, or downheartened by it. As um, I so was because I just left. <laughs> no, you'd you'd gone by this, but yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so as it wasn't was always, the complete pessimism. It was it was you know it was two thirds pessimism. I um, actually remember a certain someone that we're talking about uh, saying that no one could have predicted this, and I stuck my hand up and said, "Me and Gareth did," <laughs> and they said, "Well, let's not play a game of he said she said, shall we?" <laughs> oh dear, the incompetence. Anyway, shout out to all you global warming scientists who've been saying that for years. Yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, as was all, always the most likely of uh, revelations, the research does show that caged animals infected with the virus were being sold at the market, and the virus had very little issue jumping from animals to vendors and vendors to consumers who then passed it to everyone in their vicinity, some of whom would then, in a very Planet of the Apes kind of way, spread it to the rest of us in, in Europe and America and elsewhere, uh, like through traveling and such, and the virus just exploded as... We all know. One quote reads, we report that live SARS-CoV-2 susceptible mammals were sold at the market in late 2019. And within the market, SARS-CoV-2 positive environmental samples were spatially associated with vendors selling live mammals. Uh, they admitted that there was insufficient evidence to define upstream events, but analysis indicated that the market was indeed the epicenter and that from clinical observations, around half of the earliest known cases were people directly linked to that market. And others that weren't linked to that market had a geographical association, at least. Leader of one of the studies, Michael Warraby, an evolutionary biologist, said that the odds of the origin point being anywhere other than the market were one in 10,000. So they're pretty certain that this is where it came from. Now, why am I a host of a natural history podcast reporting on the origin point of the virus that has so affected the last three years of our lives. I mean, that's a good enough reason anyway. I mean, yes. Uh, yeah. And also it, viruses are just as integral they're, they're parts part, of our part of nature. Yeah. 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 And, and also keep in mind that COVID was the sort of spark that actually allowed us to start this podcast. It was. Yes. Thanks so COVID. Yeah, yeah. Like silver linings. <laughs> it gave us that moment of to thank. so much suffering. Allowed <laughs> it was that moment us. of hiding away near phones, <laughs> huddled together, going, "Okay, I think <laughs> I think this works." I remember when it first happened, and we started to do this. You'd always had lunch in your reptile room because you are a bloody reptile. I'd hide myself away. Yeah. Gareth cannot survive temperatures under 25 degrees Celsius. So he has to eat his, if he's not moving and keeping warm, he has to stay still in basically in, in human sized vivariums. Did you take your jumper off over the past couple of days, Gareth? Yeah. During this heat, he has got a t-shirt on right now. I'm wearing a t-shirt. He's actually sporting the Wettel t-shirt from T-Mill. I repeat, that is just how hot it is, listeners. It's so hot. Windows even open. Yeah. Yeah. but but I actually was hiding from all our colleagues in, in my own little room that just happened to be underneath your vivarium. And and, <laughs> uh, and that's where all this started. Anyway, we're getting, we need to get on with it. Anyway, I wanted to stress in answering why I'm covering this, that it's not to blame any one person or any one people or a town, a country, or indeed a continent. Uh, in my opinion, we all had and still have our parts to play in this before the end but i think it's worth covering in relation to such content because it's integral to understand the impacts that our own activity is having on the world and to give you a brief list of mammals that are susceptible to this disease it would include the cat family specifically the varieties we don't often come across except for dead on traditional medicine market stalls um otters primates which are another feature of a certain type of market binteron and if memory serves pangolins and bats were on the list too Ferrets are also susceptible. Yeah, but do you notice how species that are in this list are kind of mostly species that we don't often come across? And our penchant as destroyers and environmental usurpers for gallivanting into the forests of, 
of, of the world with fire and axes, biting, breaking, hacking, burning, is finally having a very obvious impact on our own lives and livelihoods because we're now coming across organisms carrying pathogens that we haven't been exposed to in a long time, if at all. Uh, far more frequently we're coming across these now. And as such, we put ourselves and everyone else at risk. It took just four months to get to the UK post-outbreak. And that's basically wildfire on a global scale. Um, so the lesson here is to seriously rethink our relationship with nature to become better stewards of our planet, or this will not be the last nor the most impactful and dangerous pandemic we see come out of such places in our lifetimes. And right now the government's don't seem to be taking anything seriously when it comes to the environment. So it's up to us to kind of push them in that direction. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm liking the references that you also put in there. We'll move on from your, in fact, you did mention a, uh, a sea market as part of that wet market. So that, there's yeah, a bit it, of water there. Was. So we'll, we'll go down Why are you the drain. Going down water? So why are you going on the water theme here? The I don't creature know. Creature has don't nothing know. to do with water. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, it, I, look, I went with the theme. I'm, I'm going with it. It doesn't doesn't go any further really than after the news. But all right, let's let's do that. Have your fun. It's the only thing keeping me uh, from flipping out a bit because my news article is is a mini rant, shall we say? Oh, good. Um, I wanted to talk about a new species of dinosaur that was found in Argentina. Cute little thing, about a meter and a half long, distant cousin to ankylosaurs that walked on two feet, but annoyingly. Humans get in the way, uh, and they've got in the way in the form of Shark Week, our least favorite mm. uh, week um, when it comes to TV programming on probably what is my least favorite documentary, and I'm doing that with massive air quotes, channel. So uh, Shark Week was on the Discovery Channel again, as it is every year. It's uh, 35 years it's been going, turning sharks into these bloodthirsty creatures and trying to get sensationalism out of things. So I got shown this video clip because I do not have Discovery and I don't think I would ever pay to have Discovery Channel whatsoever because I don't want to watch documentaries about space Nazis and how they've blown up 9-11 or something like that. Anyway, this is the, the article that, I've, uh, that I feel best encapsulates this is from the Metro newspaper. So Shark Week captures the most terrifying moments in history as a man narrowly escapes jaws of huge 16-foot great white shark. The man in the video clip that's actually shown on this is never actually given a name. Um, he's apparently just a diver who does things like this. Uh, they didn't bother to name him. So the video clip itself shows a 16-foot great white shark uh, going around what is essentially, it looks like a Perspex wardrobe floating there in the sea. You two have both seen the video uh, by mm -hmm. now? Yeah. Yeah. Would you, would you say it looks a bit like that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It conjures feelings of chummed cage shark diving well, type stuff. There is definitely an element of that because I will get on to the, the chumming side of it in a minute. But that box, just looking at it instantly, you can see one thing. It's moving with the water, not just moving as in bobbing around mm -hmm. like a boat. If you look at the side panels of it, it's flexing. Now, that's a 16-foot great white shark. And that's what looks like probably five, 10 mil thick perspex or acrylic. That is not very thick at all. No, um, no, no it did so, look really flimsy. 
And what proceeds to then happen is the shark comes up and has a series sort of investigation sort of bumps into the side of this thing, just figuring out what it is because sharks investigate with their mouths. That's what they do. Most bites on surfers tend to be investigation bites. Obviously, a 16-foot great white shark investigating you can investigate your leg off, which could obviously be serious. So that's where it tends to be rather bad for the human on that side of things. But making things far worse is obviously having documentaries like this, where on the, uh, the sort of fourth attempt that this shark has, it dives down and comes up and goes right through the floor of this Perspex box, leaving the diver sort of in the water with the shark uh, sort of flailing around. The uh, article goes on how he then had to swim for his life back to the boat um, to get out of the water, which he did, leaving the shark to, uh, to sort of wonder what on earth what was going on. But clearly the whole point of this, and it, it, it's not uh, talked about in that sort of sense, is they wanted the shark to break this box. It's sensationalism. It's not been done in any way to teach people about sharks. It's been done to show a man accidentally being in the water with a shark. Any expert on sharks... And I'm not an expert on sharks in the slightest, but any person who knows putting people in the water with sharks would know that you wouldn't put them in the water with something that looks like it could snap just by putting it in the water. It's that flexible. Well, can I um, also say that people actually free dive and scuba dive with sharks, with great white sharks yeah, and other dangerous species with no issues whatsoever. Exactly. The reason why surfers often have a problem is because from underneath, the way the shark sees your silhouette is it might look a little bit like a seal or a sea lion. Yeah. But this, I'll let Gareth continue, but this chumming and cage diving behaviors that surround it are, are causing problems, not just for the sharks themselves, but for people too, where in areas where it happens. Anyway, sorry, Gareth. Well, no, that's, that's where I think they're trying, well, to an extent, what they're trying to do. They don't really care about the uh, after effects of, of making sharks more used to an area for food and dependency on humans mm -hmm. it's it's more just they want to bring them in to get them in a feeding frenzy to be in that situation so that they can get a good sensationalist bit of uh, you know media out of it if you've ever watched any of these programs it's build up and build up and build up for say 30 seconds worth of actual clip what mm. i've just talked about there is probably what will be at the end portion of that entire tv program that that'll be it that'll be pretty much the entire documentary i think i mean like you say when it comes to chumming the waters you you wouldn't but i hate chumming i hate well, chumming there are so many better ways it, just basically understanding the sharks for a start is a is a better way of doing it but you wouldn't get away with doing that if you stood on the outskirts of say johannesburg and started baiting lions to come close so you could get if... a better shot of the lions in your small plastic box as they then if break any... into it if any of our listeners are interested in like diving with sharks and swimming with sharks, because I know me and Gareth are talking about doing it with, was it blue sharks? Yeah, off yeah, Cornwall. We're, we're we talking need to do about that going to do diving with blue sharks off Cornwall. If anyone's interested in diving with sharks, it can be done like in a sustainable and a a shark friendly way. Yeah. Can you just make note of this and just avoid cage diving? Avoid it like a plague. Well, I shouldn't say that because we've proven that this <laughs> our, our our species are not good at avoiding plagues. But just don't go cave diving. You're causing so many problems for your fellow man and for sharks. Yeah, yeah. it's so unfair. Now, one one final thing I wanted to mention on this like small rant is um, 
how do I know that that perspex is you know, not a good way of doing that? And there's a couple of uh, a couple of reasons. One, if you've ever built fish tanks or anything that has to retain water or hold pressure to it, that is very very thin. You can see that instantaneously from it. Mm-hmm. But the um, the main reason is there is already people who do shark diving with perspex shark cages. Essentially, what they are is a massive perspex cylinder with a grid mm-hmm. at the top and a grid at the bottom, and they lower them down. Uh, and it's to be able to get you know nice 360 degree views of the shark as it's as it's coming by. It's the exact same type of setup they also use at Australian Reptile Park, uh, where you can go in the crocodile enclosure. So you can be in the water yep. next to a giant saltwater crocodile, and I can I can tell you now there is no way on earth that crocodile could break that acrylic by just bumping into it. It's quite clearly staged to fall apart because of that. But yeah, the, the the takeaway point from this is Shark Week is yet again one of these really bad institutions of sort of making animals out to be big and scary because apparently that's the only way people have any interest in them. There are loads of really good documentaries about sharks. And yeah, sharks are dangerous. They are an apex predator. But just like with lions, tigers, all sorts of apex predators, you don't have to over-sensationalize them. They're already cool enough. You know, mm. there are plenty of documentaries and plenty of really good conservation organizations that put out a lot of stuff about them as well. Well, let's let's pull ourselves out of the sea and go back onto land. Dry us off. Now, what's one thing uh, actually, that- actually if uh if it's what I think our creature feature is, can we stay in the sea? Please? No, we're pulling you out. Um, you know, you're going to sit there with your ice cream at the seaside. Mm. And it's about this time of the year. These these uh, fantastic little fellas turn up to to share your time with you, you know, and, mm. and Drew's going to tell us all about them. So let's uh, see what's bothering Aaron. It's the creature feature. Right. Well, we're, we're sitting on the uh, the picnic bench now. We've got our food out. Aaron's looking mm. rather on edge because he knows what's coming next. Uh, Drew. What's our, our creature feature that's uh, that's got Aaron slightly worried about his ice cream? Mm-hmm. Well, I just wanted I'll to welcome everyone. Misery. Welcome everyone along to possibly the most unpopular creature feature I've, I've done to date. And I'd just is... like to say at, at the front, I like these guys. That's what usually makes me unpopular. You would. <laughs> well, I like them as well. I like them away from me. <laughs> okay. But I mean, yeah, it's exciting that they're unpopular, I think, for me, because I like talking and learning about the life forms that we share our planet with with uh, that some of us don't get along with and uh, we're covering of course the common wasp or more specifically Vespula vulgaris which i think is a Sounds i think is a vulgar <laughs> i think is a really good sounding um scientific name actually Anyway, as with any form of hatred or dislike, understanding your perceived adversary can help knock down barriers. So hopefully you guys listening to this will take away a greater understanding of wasps, even though I'm only focusing on one individual species. Now, I think everyone knows what a wasp looks like, so we'll forego delving into a, a proper description of them, um, of this, this particular species. They're, of course, very recognisable with black and yellow colouring. I would say they have a sort of a sharper appearance um to like a standard bee whereas bees are a bit more sort of rounded and also i say the colors are slightly more defined in wasps as well 
And also during summer, uh, they're of course notorious for a number of heinous activities and crimes, which include aggravated assault, stabbing, stalking, robbery of sugary goods, child napping, gun running, selling 30 billion worth of COVID contracts to their friends, sending migrants to Rwanda, and of course, like every other predator ever, brutally killing our lambs and carrying them off, never to be seen again. I probably shouldn't have to add, but most of that cannot be attributed to wasps, even though the Daily Mail may tell you so. So... All wasps species are in the highly diverse group of insects called hymenoptera, which means membrane wing. So a quick question for you both. How many species are in the order hymenoptera? So it's not necessarily Too many. just... Ooh, there are multitudes. In fact, I think they are in vying sort of territory for the most numerous insects on the planet. Yeah, um, the next, to next to beetles, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we can derive two things from that: is that God likes beetles, yep. and He likes wasps. Yeah, where's yep. the church of the wasp? If if anything, I I mean I'm not religious or spiritual in any way anyway, but I'd say the existence of of wasps, particularly the species Drew is talking about, is proof there's no God. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're the anti anti wasp church. Fair enough. <laughs> So how how many how many species? Uh, well, number wise, I, I um, if they're slightly less than beetles, there's something like four hundred and fifty thousand species of beetles. So I'm going to say somewhere around uh four hundred thousand species of wasp. Well, this does also include ants and bees. Hymenoptera also includes those. Yeah, yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's go with four hundred thousand. Uh, Aaron, do you want any takers on that? Two hundred thousand, maybe like slightly more, slightly less. But around the two hundred thousand mark. All right. Well, it's... I'm gonna be really wrong because Gareth's the invert person. No, you're. Yeah, closer. but I'm only going off what I roughly remember. I don't remember. Uh, it's how it's many 100, species. 150,000 or more than well, that. Would win anything 000. for being closer? Uh, no. Uh, just Some the just the level of smug that you would uh, naturally feel from being correct and Gareth wrong. So it's only a hundred and fifty thousand. Hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. Wow. But more, well, more than one hundred fifty thousand. But, yeah. but oh, with... I'm I'm shocked by the uh, the lack of species. Several <laughs> million more units, well on the way. Well, let's move on. Uh, so, <laughs> more more specifically to the UK, how many wasp species are there in the UK? Ooh, there's a lot of solitary species. Mm-hmm. Are we including those? Yep, all of them. Um. Also, I have got two different answers for this one as well. If you can get as close to either of them, that would be good. Let's go 600 species. 600, yeah. Aaron? Gareth's gone 600. Yeah. Mm. It's mm. going to be like woefully off that, I, I bet. I'm going to go 1,000. Okay. The Natural History Museum says there's over 7,000, and Bug Life Damn. says there's approximately 9,000. So what we can gauge from that is that there's a lot. So yeah, neither of you. So I'm anyway, closer yeah. again. You're closer yeah. again. Yeah, you're closer but again. Neither of you in here. Um, so the, <laughs> the high diversity of, of species uh, include the parasitic wasps, some of which are so tiny they can barely be seen without a microscope. And 250 of these are the larger wasps, which have a stinger. And nine of these are eusocial wasps that form large nests. The majority are solitary and cause, and I quote, no upset to humans. But... As I mentioned, uh, we are going to be focusing on the common wasp, which is Vespula vulgaris. A quick honourable mention to the other wasp that gets called the common wasp, um, and that's Vespula 
Germanica or the German wasp or the Deutsch Vesper. Um, yeah, that is a direct translation, but I don't know if the Germans actually call it that. So please get in contact, uh, Germany. Um, so the two look very, very similar, these two species, and they have very similar behaviors. But I think Vespula germanica could be worthy of its own feature, um, especially as a, a direct comparison to this one, as there are some subtle differences. But either way, if you come in contact with a black and yellow largish wasp in the UK or Europe, it's likely uh, it'll be one of these two pest predating, pollinating patrollers. So, Aaron, do you remember what the fear of wasps is uh, and bees is called? We oh, had it in the um, quiz. Is it vespophobia or no? That sounds like I'm frightened of mopeds. Um, aspophobia. <laughs> uh, it's sphexophobia. Sphex, like. Yeah. Sphinx. Like, yeah, I was going to say almost <clears throat> like Sphinx. Almost like Sphinx. Sphex. Sphex. Yeah. Okay, Sphex. I've just <laughs> outed myself having a terrible lisp. Sphex. <laughs> My microphone is soaking from all the spit. It's just... <laughs> well, that's why I got <laughs> so you to the cat. Sacred. Sacred. Sphexophobia. So, God. Would you... Because obviously you have Sphexophobia. A mile? Yeah. Yeah, I would. I would not identify as sphexophobic for for a couple reasons. Okay. Reason on. number one is I had a conversation with the first head keeper that I worked under about fears, phobias, superstitions, all this. Kind of, it, we had a few deep conversations, but um, this was one of them. And he, the way he described phobias as opposed to fears and stuff mm -hmm. was that my fear of wasps is genuine. It's valid, but it's well, no, it's not valid. Sorry, it's genuine. Like, I'm genuinely frightened of wasps. I won't say it's valid because there's no reason to be frightened of them. It's irrational, uh, and I know that, and I'm very embarrassed by it. But um, oh, but it's not debilitating. Yeah, okay. A and a phobia is debilitating. It stops you from being able to live in that moment as a result of stimulation by what you're frightened of. You cannot function in, in your life because okay. it, it debilitates but I, I don't know if that's scientifically an accurate way of defining between fear or phobia but that's why i don't identify as sphexophobic i am just frightened of them and the second reason is because in recent years i've become far more tolerant of them to the point that now i actually can let them fly around me without running away screaming okay <laughs> however okay. if they come at me and wasps do come at you mm. as a scientific fact <laughs> if they come at me with the intention to mug me like they yeah. have done in the past then i'm not a stay stiller or a wafter i am loyally attached to the defense mechanism of running and screaming and the higher pitch to scream the more effective the escape plan is the one time that i tried to stay still is the one time i got stunned so i will never go back to that i will always be a runner and a screamer however okay, i can well. tolerate them at picnics and barbecues so i'm no longer as frightened as i used to be yeah 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 well we will cover what to do uh, should one come at you or be near you towards the very end but as a great man once said facts are the counter to fear that great man, by the way, was me, and I just said that just now. So we're going <laughs> to arm ourselves with Mark some this facts. date. Uh, <laughs> let's mark it down. Um, and what better way to understand wasps than by becoming a wasp? So I invite you both to become wasp, but you'll okay. be playing different roles. So uh, yeah. Gareth, you're, you're going to you're going to be the first 
participant in this because I cannot think of a person more worthy than to take the title of Queen. Uh, we shall oh, thanks. now refer to you as your majesty and also uh, we <laughs> should quickly take the time to ask you to please stop protecting your horrible son who doesn't sweat and throw him under the bus as he deserves but anyway gareth your majesty hey, don't, you know don't don't go blaming me for that <laughs> you are now a beautiful queen wasp uh, thank you so you've been in, <laughs> in a deep sleep over the colder months in a nice cozy wood shed luckily for you yep as this would be a short feature no spiders have eaten you in your sleepy state and you begin to stir. Very op- good. Opening your big compound eyes. So what month what? of the year, Gareth, do you choose to emerge? Mm. Um, what sort of come out of torpor, as it were? Yeah, you actually come out. Yeah. I think it's like yourself as a queen. Sort of late March. Oh, very good. Yeah. Yeah. March. Um, any earlier and you'll die in the cold. And any later, yeah. you'll be too late to find a good nat- nesting spot. Um, and you won't be able to produce workers to feed you and your staff. So although with climate change, warmer winters will cause queen wasps to emerge from hibernation a little bit too soon um, and starve due to the lack of food. Uh, so that's fun. But uh, this is a normal year, mm. thankfully, this year that we're okay. being a wasp. So it's early spring. And at this time of the year, there are no active wasp nests. It's just you and your fellow queens, Gareth, your majesty. Uh, looking for a suitable place to build new nests. So your yep. first royal instinct uh, and duty is to find a safe spot to build a nest for you and your future offspring. So where would you like to nest, Your Majesty? Would you like to hear some options? Oh, go on then. Yeah, what's so up on the real estate? Yeah, or, uh, so what's, what's available on the uh, on the Weber's window is a a an old barn on a farm, b Ooh. a garden shed, c Ooh. An attic with a wasp-sized hole, or D, a tall tree hollow. What would you like? Oh, I mean, the barn is is very, you know, it's very tempting. Yeah, mm. you know, barns are hot property these days. Yes. Uh, the tree, you know, it's quite ni- nice and natural. We, I'll, just, also... I'll just quickly say, we can do do-overs on this, by the way, because if you end up killing yourself, we will just uh, let you try again. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna. Go for the house, actually, because, you know, it's going to be nice and insulated. There's probably going to be a loft. I know I'm probably going to get killed by people. But, at- uh... so the, the attic with the wasp-sized hole. Yep. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Gareth, that attic is owned by a second homeowner with no respect for the countryside. <laughs> and once they discover you, they call an exterminator. Two oh, homes. Dear. Can you imagine such a thing? Two homes. Anyway, <laughs> uh, would, you, would you like to choose again? <laughs> Two yeah, homes I, where I, Gareth you know what? is struggling for one. Yeah. Not Gareth the person, Gareth the wasp. Just yes. Gareth the wasp is uh, is dead. It's uh, I, I'm going to go for the tree. The tree, yeah. So it's it's a traditional choice, and uh, you know it's worked for queens before you, and yeah, you'll be safe there. Um, another good option was the garden shed as well, uh, because mm. it, it should be warm and safe, and occasionally an old barn on a farm might be okay as well. But uh, unfortunately, sometimes the farmers do use toxic uh, neonicotinoids, which have uh, just been approved by the government. Thanks, Brexit. And one teaspoon of those is enough to kill 1.2 billion bees. That should be considered a weapon of mass destruction. Sure, it oh, should be. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and that's why it's banned by the EU. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we like it. Can I just jump in quickly? Yeah. A thought occurred to me when I was going around little earlier today, and <laughs> half the shelves were empty. I thought, you know what? This is a definite Brexit bonus. 
finally I found one after all these years. Mm. I don't have to think when I go shopping now. I just just choose what's available. Whatever's left. <laughs> I wanted cereal. There was only one kind of cereal, so that's the only cereal I'm having. I wanted milk. I could only get the kind of milk that I didn't want, so I'm not having milk this week. It takes uh, all of the thinking out of shopping. It's oh, so much that's amazing. That's well, amazing. This... No thought required. Oh, that is true. That is my favorite yeah, thing to have come out of Brexit <laughs> is you saying that. Yep, yep. Thought free shopping. <laughs> so, ancestors of the common wasp nested in whatever cavities they could find. Uh, this has resulted in species that thrive in man made structures, such as sheds and lofts. And this sometimes makes wasps a pest problem when the colony mass increases. But now for you, Gareth, you have your nesting spot and it's time to make your royal abode or your nest. Lovely. So you start stripping wood uh, mm-hmm. from fence panels and shed walls and the traditional place to find wood trees, which you're in. You chew and shred the material and mix it with your royal saliva and wax to make a paste, which is then used to construct the nest. Your nest has a centre stalk, which is called a petiole. This is an interesting word that has two definitions with wasp and is uh, one of your word of the weeks. A botanical petiole is a slender stem that attaches a leaf to the main stem on a plant. For whatever reason, with wasp's nest, the central stem is called the petiole. But there we go. Um, A petiole in insects like wasps is the narrow waist that joins the abdomen to the thorax. So there you go. That's a a double entendre word of the week. And Ah. don't say we don't ever spoil you guys. That's so, interesting because in spiders it's called the epistosoma. Oh, maybe it's just uh, insects then, and not so much uh, for arachnids. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, around this centre stalk, this petiole, you add hexagonal cells. These are similar to the cells that can be seen within a, a beehive. And once the nest is built or partially built, there's no real resting for you, Your Majesty, because you need to start laying eggs into those cells. So soon enough, congratulations, Gareth. Your Majesty, oh, your children are hatching. Yeah. And your maggot like grubs are very hungry. So you venture out to feed them. Uh, they yep. need protein. So you settle on some green flies or aphids, which are rich in the old pea stuff. Uh, that's protein, just, just in case <laughs> there's any confusion there. Um, so rich in the, the old pea. Oh, yeah. Uh, so when the grubs are at the right stage of development, all of your babies, which are all female, will pupate just like a caterpillar into a butterfly. And after a few weeks, they have transformed into adult worker wasps. One of them has dreadlocks, and you call her... What? Erin. <laughs> so... Such a beautiful name. <laughs> like a... a little girl wasp. Yeah, so like all healthy mother-daughter relationships, Erin is there to serve you. And you made sure all the eggs you laid would be sterile. So Aaron wouldn't give, uh, wouldn't have any ideas of overthrowing you. So Aaron is a measly 1.2 to 1.7 centimeters long compared to Queen Gareth, who is ah, 2.5 centimeters long. A mighty um, 2.5. Mighty. But anyway, Gareth, your majesty, you need to get on with that egg laying. So I'm know. on it. Uh, but you can cease your nest expansion as Aaron and all of his sisters will take over those duties now and caring for the new larvae siblings. Uh, So we're now in April and May, and the colony is still very small, with just a few workers. As it increases in size, so does the ability of the workforce to forage and feed the young, thus maintaining the cycle of growth. Keep this up much longer, and we'll have uh, wasp capitalism, baby. But it's (laughs) it's up to Aaron and his worker sisters to forge that growth now. The colony relies on them 
just like capitalism. So, you know, something to think about. Uh, so Queen Gareth, you need to keep your daughters busy. So you put them on nest maintenance and babysitting duty whilst you keep on spewing out eggs. Queen Honeybees, uh, what actually, what would you like to say to the Queen Honeybees out there, Gareth? Or the Queen, Queen Honeybees? Gareth. Yeah. Well, I'm a wasp, so I'm I'm probably going to be quite happy eating any of them if I, you know, if I found one that was a bit ill. Yeah. So uh, the chumps. Yeah, basically. I mean, yeah. they all right. They make honey, you know. Yeah. But oh, look at me! I make honey. Ooh. Yeah. You know, I don't have to bribe people to like me. No, <laughs> no trick. <laughs> well, honeybees can produce around two thousand eggs per day. How many eggs do you reckon you can lay a day? I'm going to say it's probably somewhere quite less than that. So probably 30 or something, 40. Oh, 100. So, yeah, oh. Not too far off. So yeah, 100 eggs per day. They have got you on the uh, egg laying department, I suppose. But anyway. Um, but Aaron, it's your turn now. So you've got lots of chores to do. You have to collect more wood to expand the nest to keep up with mm. Gareth's 100 per day laying. You also have to fly out uh, to collect water to keep the nest at the desired temperature, which is around 5 to 10 degrees above outside temperature. High temperatures and crowding, though, can cause you all to get a bit more aggressive. Uh, and the temperature is getting very hot now, which is... Oh, uh, God. You know, it's getting very hot, uh, as it is in the real world. So what are you going to do to try and cool down the nest? Do you, A, chew holes in the nest for ventilation... Do you B, fan your wings to cool the ambient air temperature? C, carry a dead insect to water, soak it in water and bring it back? Or D, commit sororicide a few times, which uh, do either of you guys know what that means? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, killing your sisterhood. Killing your sisters, yeah. Yeah. What do you want to do? Well, I don't think it would be sororicide. And I think the uh, red, the, the, the ridiculous answer would be the... Uh... Carrying the insect corpse to water. A sponge. Um, <laughs> I'm half tempted by the fan in the, the wings, but then surely more more movement means more body heat. But I think I think that's the one I'm gonna go with. I'll be honest, if I if I'm a if it's me in wasp form, mm. I'm not gonna be able to kill any wasp. Firstly, I I wouldn't hurt a fly, but uh, secondly, <laughs> well, as a wasp, I'd be you bloody terrified of them all. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you... I'm gonna flap my wings and and okay. fan areas. I I think I feel like making holes is probably what some sort of simpleton wasp would do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have picked the correct choice. Well done. Oh, phew. So perfect. So things are going well. Uh, Queen Gareth is laying more eggs, and Aaron, the worker, is literally keeping things from falling apart. Uh, but Queen Gareth keeps killing the union representatives because they keep saying <laughs> things that make sense. But I'm going to jump off the uh, that platform. <laughs> I think we've been on it too long. But Aaron is going to collect protein-rich food for the larvae so they can grow up. Food for them includes flies of all different species, uh, small spiders, aphids, and other small to medium in size insects. You chop up the body parts, carry them back to the nest where they're gobbled up by the ever-increasing number of larvae. But Aaron, your wasp tummy is rumbling. You need food as well. Where would you like to get your food? Again, I've got some options for you. Would you like to go to A, a pub, B, an orchard, C, a vegetable patch, D, a picnic, or E, stay in the nest? I think, um, well, considering how many wasps go to picnics and how many wasps you find around pubs, mm. I'm going to avoid areas of high wasp population density. High, high, yeah, absolutely. Well, we've, we've I'm going to go to the... 
I'm going to go to the orchard. Um, I'm sure there are other wasps there, but I can probably get away from them and not out myself as an absolute coward. You're a very antisocial, you social insect. You know that. (laughs) Yeah, but at least I'm honest in my cowardice. This is, well, fair enough. (laughs) Orchard's a good choice. Yeah. Well, no one's going to slap me with a beer mat there or trap me under a glass. I'm literally on pub answer. I literally have, you get trapped underneath a pint of glass. Uh, Yeah. And uh, the the picnic was a bad choice as well because you would just further damage the reputation of your kind because people hate you. But yeah, orchard's a good choice because there's lots of uh, fermenting apples and you get your your antenna off on the juices. Uh, You get a good sugar boost, but you'll have a, uh, a wasp hangover tomorrow maybe. A vegetable patch is also a decent choice as well. And honestly, staying in the nest is probably the best choice uh, because why waste energy when the larvae produce an edible sugary liquid for you? So you feed them and then they feed you. So at this point, Aaron, I should quickly ask how long you think your lifespan is after pupating to after you've emerged as an adult wasp. So in human years, I'm, I'm 35 years old and I plan to live to be a good age, you know? Yeah. Um, so I imagine that wasps must live each individual wasp. If it doesn't get flattened by a beer mat or trapped in the glass, I'd imagine it lives at least the same amount of age as the average Aaron. Um, mm-hmm. so basically pester that average Aaron for the rest of his life. And that's is that your answer? <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with three months. Three roughly. months. Four, no, four. Can I? No. I'm going to go with five months. That's my final answer. <laughs> Lock it in. <laughs> Lock it in. Okay. Boom. You only have 12 to 22 days to live. <laughs> um, you had one million. Yeah. You've lost it all. You've lost it all. But for the purposes uh, wow. of this feature, you are, you're going to be a bizarrely long-lived individual. Uh, otherwise, you'd be... What, a pest of the average Aaron? I mean, yeah. to be fair, it's a wasp that already has dreadlocks, so exactly already a slightly odd, uh, yeah. odd wasp. So yeah, you're you're just going to keep going. Otherwise, you'd just die quite soon, and it, we'd just be left with uh, with Gareth and some unnamed worker wasps. So you don't need the pea stuff. Uh, instead, you've got to load up on sugar and carbs to give you the energy to serve the colony. Mm. So moving on, the nest reaches its maximum size towards the end of summer or the beginning of autumn. Queen Gareth will now lay queen eggs and drone eggs. Each nest will produce around 1,000 to 1,500 new queens. Once these eggs are laid, Queen Gareth is all done laying and you can take a yep. breather. Ah, uh, oh, cool. These special eggs hatch out and when they have pupated, they turn into virgin queens and male drone wasps. Queen Gareth, you watch them go and they navigate to mating areas. Believe that drones will not mate with queens from the same nest as they can visually recognise other individuals from the same colony. And this ensures Good, that inbreeding... You know, I'm not into the whole Targaryen thing, you know. No, it ensures that in- inbreeding does not occur and genes are evenly distributed, which is very rare for a royal family. So <laughs> once mating has taken place, the now not virgin queens will find somewhere to hibernate over the winter months. And the male drones... They just die. But now that Queen Gareth has produced new queens, the nest is now on a countdown to death. Everything you both built is crumbling. Yay, anarchy! (laughs) The timing of a new queen production varies from year to year, uh, but it is synchronised, so all colonies do it at the same time. This ensures that there are enough drones and queens to mate successfully. So it's now autumn. Erin, 
uh, very long lived. You live through the whole of the nest activity and through the whole of the colony. Um, you and your worker sisters are left in the nest with no food source because there are no wasp larvae to feed you with the sugar solution. So mm-hmm. you need sugar and you've got to go and find it. So you're desperate for any sugar to sustain you. And you go to a local cafe where cream tea is being served. Is it the Dev- Dev- Devonian way? It is the Devonian way. If it was uh, Cornish. I'd yeah, bet- between start. the cream and the jam. Which is which one is on top, by the way? It's cream on first, then jam. On so top. the jam is on top, yeah, because there's only run one right answer. Uh, so yeah, thankfully the jam is on top, and you decide to go for it. Unfortunately, humans are protective of their cream teas, and one is swatting you away. Uh, it could even be yourself in this multi wasp verse, or the Whoa. or the multi verse Bueller. There's a uh, this week's pun. So, what are you going to do, Aaron? You need sugar. You don't have many options here. You're already the longest living worker wasp ever. Uh, are you going to become that which you hate? I'm gonna I'm gonna out myself here, yeah, uh, controversially. And say that I avoid the cream tea because despite how much I argue that cream goes on first, I hate jam. Oh. It's all a big pretense. I hate jam. Oh, wow. As it was, and they you instead don't. go for their Coca-Cola that is sat right next to it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you come for their Coca-Cola. They're still yeah. swatting and there's you've got no you've got no choice really. You use your only defense and um, you stab. Only defense. Yeah. <laughs> you stab. I'm going to stab them. I'm going to yeah. stab them right on the tongue. Yeah, so you stab them on the tongue. As, the, as they're shouting, their mouth is open. They're coming down to swap me like, you, beep, 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 beep. And as they are making that final beep, yeah. swoop in, sting out on, yes. right on that tongue of theirs, and then dive into their Coca-Cola and have a big old... <laughs> Perfect. So yeah, I, you stab him with your venom and, and you, you pull out. Uh, unlike honeybees, <laughs> no, this is a serious podcast. Uh, unlike honeybees, you don't have hooks to keep the finger <laughs> to keep the stinger uh, in a human skin, so you no. survive and so I can make a multi stab. Yeah, you can multi stab. Uh, I can you... Jason Voorhees these people. <laughs> yes, uh, and and you can make a dash for it afterwards, covered in that sweet sweet Coke, Coca Cola, I should say. So bees, meanwhile, basically pull their ass off and they die. Uh, <laughs> So anyone stung by a wasp or bee is likely to suffer a painful swelling at the site of the sting. And for most people, it isn't dangerous. For a small minority, an allergic reaction to an insect sting can be systemic, which means that it uh, affects part of the body away from the site of the sting. Uh, Mm. This is also known as anaphylaxis and can be life-threatening. The general advice is that trying to swat the insect is a stupid thing to do. And it's more Definitely. likely to sting you. Mm. Instead, the best form of advice is not necessarily to, and just scream. to stand there. It's also not not to run and scream. It's to no. move away calmly and slowly. Well, but... I I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It doesn't uh, matter how fast you are, so long as you are running. And mm-hmm. what what matters the important the integral part is the higher pitch to scream, the, the more likely the wasp will leave you alone. Because wasps, for all their villainy. They have an honor code. Just like the predator won't yeah. attack someone without a weapon, a wasp won't sting you if you look like an absolute wimp. Okay. And it well, has served me well. <laughs> fair enough. But um, we are pretty much at the, at the end of our wasp story now. It's late autumn and it's getting chilly. Food is running out and Queen Gareth and worker Aaron and all the other workers are all slowly starving. 
So Queen Gareth, <laughs> your queen daughters will carry on your dynasty next year, and their nests will continue to be incredible pollinators whilst looking for sweeties and predators when feeding the brood. So from me and hopefully all listening, we thank both of you, Aaron and Gareth, for your wasp sacrifice and making the world a better place for pollinating and being the predators that you are. And that oh, is the end. Know. That is the end. Wasps are great. Yeah, they are. They do give you figs, and also they create folic acid, which you wouldn't be able to mm. have if your frosties without. Mm. And yeah. frosties are great. <laughs> I do have a yeah, question, God. Drew. Go on, him. It's kind of a double question. I might because... not be able to answer it, but let's go. Let's try it. That's, that's fine. It, Gareth might be able to answer. One of our listeners might be able to answer. Mm. Um, can wasps control the amount of venom that they inject? And secondly, if it's not the case, then like with with some other venoms and toxins and, and poisons and stuff, can different people have different immunoresistance to, to wasp things? The reason why I'm asking is in my 35 years of running away, screaming like a big wimp, I've noticed that some people, they like ignoring the anyone who might have an allergic reaction or anaphylaxis because that is something else entirely. But I've noticed that some people really find them very, very painful. But the one time I got stunned, I got stunned on the back of the neck. And I specifically remember thinking that it didn't hurt. It was itchy. It was mm -hmm. definitely a wasp mm. because I saw it, but it, it was just itchy. Uh, and the problem for me was that because I'm scared of them, I had to go and sit down because I felt cold and I started like shaking not shaking like a reaction like trembling because i was frightened but yeah i specifically remember it didn't hurt it like it just itched right mm. so in terms of the amount of venom, i don't think they can necessarily control the amount of venom that they that they inject no i'm not sure on that one either <clears throat> i don't think so however the amount of venom that they inject compared to say a bee is actually uh -huh. significantly less because the stinger doesn't stay in you yeah uh, so it's okay. in and out and uh, they inject only about 2 to 15 micrograms of venom, whereas a bee can potentially inject as much as 50. That's, that's quite a big difference, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's uh, the, the bee sting sits there and just pumps away its little reservoir. Yeah. So it depends on um, how quickly you can get the bee stinger out. Yeah. I think the second half of your question, I think people do have different tolerances to the venom. Yes. Um, tolerance is a better way of saying what I was trying to say. Yeah. I, said, yeah. I think I said immunoresistance, but tolerance was yeah, what no, I was getting at. Because obviously, the one end of the spectrum is being completely and utterly allergic and going into anaphylactic yeah. shock. Yeah. And the other end is, okay, that's a little bit painful. And then I suppose it just depends on your own individual tolerance for things, really, tolerance for pain. I mean, I could be wrong in saying this, but I don't think there's anyone out there who's who won't have literally no reaction at all. I don't think you no, can be immune, no, to, I it, immune you have to it. To have some sort of reaction. Mm. Actually, that's an interesting follow-up, what you just said. And I think from what you've just said, you probably don't know the answer, but Gareth might. I know that there's a movement to, and I don't know anything about this. That's why I'm acting as a listener, because mm -hmm. I don't know anything about this. I know quite a bit about venoms and how they work, but I don't know much about this aspect of it. I know that some people, and I don't know how smart or stupid this is but i know that some people do controlled injections of certain venoms i thought you were gonna like to um, try and to try and build an immunity to it is yes. there any science behind that because that is something i'm really unclear on 
so this comes from it's called it's another word of the week if you like it's called mithridatism um and it's because after mithridates uh, after mithridates who was a greek king i believe um yeah. and he basically gave himself small doses of poison to Im- make himself immune to lots of different poisons because he had a fear of being poisoned by someone and i think the irony of his the end of his life is that his city became under siege and he was in a position where he needed well he felt that he had to end it so he tried to poison himself and he couldn't because he was immune to the poisons so i, th- I think there is a level where yeah you can build up an immunity to something but i think it's i think the science is out as to uh, whether it this... works on everything whether it might whether it might depend on an individual type of venoms because there are many types of venoms well he was doing um, he was doing poison i don't know yeah. if if venom... yeah i think there is apparently and this is to do with bees and it's a bit of an odd thing that uses i mean venom in itself is fascinating mm-hmm. um using bees as ways of being able to stimulate like muscle and, and blood flow almost like a weird form of acupuncture and rebuilding nerves um, yes. in in sort of tissue by basically getting live bees, this is the bit I don't particularly agree with, um, getting live bees and forcing them to sting people in certain areas and doing it sort of methodically, obviously the bees then die. It helps to uh, to sort of stimulate nerves in sort of damaged tissue. And it seems to be showing some sort of results as to, as to being quite useful, but obviously not very useful for the bees themselves. Mm. No. The, the reason why I went down that route is because what your answer to my initial question, it re- reminded me years ago, I joined a Facebook group, not because I wanted to get involved, but just because it just morbid curiosity uh, that was something to do with uh, self immunization against like snake venoms. Mm-hmm. And just whilst we were talking about it, I pulled it up to have, have a look. And I've just been reminded that some of these people have like actual very detailed plans that they share here like programs of when they're going to i suppose the word would be self-envenomate with this and how much of this they're going to use and so and mm-hmm. i just uh it just it, it i don't want to take it too far away from wasps but um yeah, like, i just thought i wondered if it, if there was a related thing i don't, I, I don't think so the thing is um it's, it's mean, something i'm not clear on whereas I, whereas you can ask me what the different components in venom is like, for example, there's histamine and such in wasp venom. And I can tell you what yes. that stuff does, but mm. I can't tell you what, like, if so, I was just interested because I don't know if there's any science behind self-immunization. So, I mean, there's, venom. so I, I did just look up because, you know, myth, mythodatism is a thing, but I didn't actually know how effective it, it actually is. So mm. basically it does depend on the poison, but it, it can be done with some of them. Um, so you can build up tolerances to different poisons. However, sometimes some poisons will just sort of, or some toxins will just stay in the body and then you accumulate them if you continue to take more and more and more. So you just slowly poison mercury yourself. poisoning. Yeah, yeah. but it, apparently it is, it is possible to build up a, a tolerance to Question is specific though, non-biological poisons. How often are you going to be encountering, how often are you going to be bitten by a snake that you're going to need to be envenomated yeah, sorry, need to be envenomated on an almost a, a semi-weekly basis to be able to build up this tolerance to it. Just be slightly better at being around snakes in that well, there's, situation. There's or don't three. go into the areas where there are snakes. There's three answers to this. Either these people are doing it as volunteers in, I don't know, some sort of human trials for a science aspect. 
I imagine that there is also a certain fraternity where it's ego driven. Look what I can get myself. Yeah. And then I imagine there's another group that just, like you say, don't know how to be around snakes and are very, very worried living in Australia, not knowing, not having a genuine understanding of these animals and thinking that they're all out to get you. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's a topic that I think we could go on a long time about. I didn't even touch on the first encounter I had with, with wasps and, and how it basically was a garden shed where we came across them hiding away and uh, turning the garden shed into a nice big wasp nest. Well, I didn't ask you to be fair, so that's on me. That's all right. I will fill you in about that. And well, I mean, we'll cover another wasp, I'm sure, yeah. at some point. And uh, all the wasps. They are a fantastic good. group of insects. So let's move on from that into our emails for this week. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's emails, and our first one comes from that indie lady. Um, Drew, what have we got? Yeah, the question was, what wildlife watching experiences have your partners had? And she also added, we've heard yours, and yeah, you've heard plenty of us. So um, we've basically all asked both of these. Actually, probably worth mentioning that both of these questions are for our partners, and the way we've done it just to just for simplicity's sake is just to ask them to send us some stuff and uh, write it down so we can read it back from them. Um, so the next voice you'll be hearing is Jess, but through me, my partner, Jess, but through me. Spared no expense. Spared no expense. My partner said, I've been lucky to have a lot of wildlife experiences. Some that immediately come to mind are seeing basking sharks and diving gannets off of Land's End in Cornwall, holding a smooth snake in Dorset, uh, which is something that I uh, share. We were both very excited for that, as well as camping and a wasp camping. A wild barn owl almost flew into me, which is a, a good story. Obviously, lots of incredible experiences with the zoo animals. My captive pair of ravens who mimicked my um, hire when they saw me. And it's got in brackets here. Drew can do an impression. So it's, hiya. And I'm sure she's going to enjoy that. And then simple things like a hedgehog and a woodpecker family in the garden. However, the memory I always go back to is from when I volunteered with Birds of Prey. Myself and another volunteer took one of our hunting females, uh, Tess, out free-flying, and she was flirty with two wild buzzards. Uh, instead of calling her back, we lay in the field and watched them for an hour, just calling and soaring above us. It was just the best. So there we go. That's that's mine. It was cool. Yeah, it was really good. So, yeah, my partner says that um, her favourite wildlife experience was... It was Eva when she was on a boat to Tenerife and there were dolphins following her boat. She, um, she didn't specify, but I imagine that they were playing in the bow wave. Um, I've seen dolphins do that myself. She's also uh, said that also she, she's seen sharks and sharks in the, in the ports on her islands. And she's seen a whale around her islands too. Oh, that's um, cool. I did ask her what species of these animals that she saw, but she says she was only 16 at the time. She wasn't as interested in them as she is now. So, yeah, but I imagine that was really cool for her. And I'm very jealous at the same time. <laughs> very much so. Well, my other half has also got a, a very sort of everything's ocean-wise to an extent today, uh, or at least water-wise. That's because everything good about this planet is in the ocean. <laughs> oh that's not true we've got tigers haven't we uh 
I think you'll find cake is is not generally found in the ocean. And cake's cake's good. good in colder climates, not cream, so good in hot climates. Cream climate. aren't found in the ocean. Oh, near, there near we it. go. Anyway, Sorry. anyway, this has got very little to do with it. So <laughs> uh, my other half has uh, said her most powerful wildlife encounter was when she went swimming and got to interact with stingrays in Antigua. Oh. Um, while there, they took a short boat trip out to a sort of a shallow coastal area where they they basically were able to feed and swim with uh, the rays and, you know, they, they sort of bump up against you and uh, they're quite inquisitive. So they got to feed uh, and get up close to these rays as well. And they all did this. Uh, the, the rays were doing this voluntarily and the proceeds uh, went from this, went to a, a local wildlife rehab center uh, that's unfortunately sadly shut down during COVID. Um, she went to, to have a look to see if it was there and as a sort of a jogging of her memory when uh, when we were talking about this earlier this week. But the interaction is one that she said she'll never forget. So, yeah. And she also said, as a, a weird side note, she was also lucky enough to do this encounter alongside a famous celebrity as well. But she's not said who. Oh. So, you dear listener, it. if you want to uh, take a complete and utter wild guess as to who my wife went swimming with uh, years and years ago in Antigua, send you answers on the back of a postcard <laughs> right well let's go from that question to um our next question uh yeah so the next question uh also for our partners as i said and it's from nattering newt uh who asked when have you felt the most powerful mine was showing male teacher friends my spiders uh should we do same order yeah okay. and I, I love i love that the uh scaring people off with spiders or you know impressing people with spiders is always a good one yes so again she said great question and she said there's a few moments that come to mind firstly when i was volunteering with birds of prey again and the center was next door to a marine training camp the marines would often come in wanting to hold the biggest bird possible which was a golden eagle she was only 14 years old at the time and she would pick the eagle up give him some scratches and hold him close because he was very heavy. So your arm would break if you hold him too far away from you. And she said, I'd go to pass the eagle over and I can't tell you how many photos I've taken of terrified Marines holding their arms out as far as possible. (laughs) Uh, And the second example that she had was another one is when the baboons at the zoo would bark and get excited when they saw me coming or when the macaques would lip smack and take food from me directly into their mouths. Sorry, carnivore and invert keepers, but big cats, wolves and inverts will take food from anyone. But my primates take a lot of work. Sorry, Aaron and Gareth, but not really. Whoa. Uh, having, <laughs> having primates relax with you, but the second any one of you boys come into the room, they turn aggressive. That's a very powerful feeling. And she put in brackets, and this is to me as well. Uh, if any of you make comments, they are, most of them, ex-pets, the primates, or ex-circus animals mistreated by men. So I hope you feel bad. <laughs> Hey, I've worked with rescued primates too, you know. Yeah, I don't yeah. feel bad because I, I did my best to, for those baboons for a long time. Um, yes, my partners will be a little bit different from Drew's in, in Gareth's because uh, she's not worked directly with animals. But I really like her answer because it's kind of natural history in its purest form because it's part of us mm-hmm. as primates ourselves being being animals. So she said that... She thinks the most powerful she's felt is when when our daughter fell and she was able to calm her. The sensation of our daughter just wanting a cuddle from her 
for comfort and the speed with which she calmed on her chest makes her feel the most powerful um and for her that that means everything mm-hmm. well strangely enough i'd say that it's very similar to what uh, my wife's put um oh. she is of ex zookeeper stock as well um, <laughs> zookeeper stock well i mean There's that's a lot that's... of us yeah, yeah, we are. We are many. We escaped from our lives. And I do know that that she's been immensely proud of some of the animals that she's worked with, uh, tapirs and all sorts of uh, different animals. But the the sort of thing that she's focused on, and I think it's it's a really good moment for humanity in the same sort of vein of what Aaron was just saying. Uh, and she's put uh, that her most empowered moment or most empowered female moment was seeing uh, Jacinda Ardern. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know that, uh, she's the Prime Minister of New Zealand mm-hmm. and genuinely an amazing politician and person. Um, One of the few. Yeah, just did really well throughout the last three years for her people. Yeah, well, part of the reason why she uh, sticks in both myself and uh, and my partner's minds is when we went to New Zealand, we were there literally in Christchurch the day of that terrorist attack. Um, so mm-hmm. for the last couple of days of our honeymoon, we were sort of surrounded by that whole, you know, news cycle of, of watching what was going on and, and watching the, the prime minister respond and everything. And in, in sort of doing that, you, you end up sort of, you know, you, you look into almost the background of, of what those politicians are like. And she's an absolutely amazing politician in her sort of policies and how she does things. I, I quite like her. Anyway, sorry, back to uh, to the, the main uh, part of it. So her favorite moment is when Jacinda Ardern took her three-month-old uh, daughter into the UN. The fact that a woman was able to take a child into something so incredibly important is a huge step in the right direction towards parents and children being recognized and uplifted as part of society. And the support and acceptance mm. that pregnant and breastfeeding women and parents, regardless of gender or job, all need. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's really good to see yeah. um, those sort yeah. of things, especially when our government won't even allow a woman in with her child into a parliament because uh, it would be distracting for the gawking apes that are sitting in the front row, I guess. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's kind of telling when uh, they say that, we, we you know, you can't have a, a woman with her small child sitting in uh, parliament, probably because it would distract the large toddler at the front of the room if he saw a, another toddler at the, at the back of the room. Mm. But, yeah, those were genuinely really good questions. Uh, and a big thank you to all of our partners for basically giving us that information there hmm. and a bit of a, a view into their uh, pasts and everything. Um, so a big thank you to them for for doing that. And if you too, dear listener, want to, uh, to send in any, any questions for not just ourselves, but our partners um, on our views on all sorts of different things from politics. We never talk about politics here. No, 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 no. It doesn't belong in, con- in conservation is what I've of course people not. say. No, no, no. But do you know what? Doesn't. Can I can I just jump in on that? Like, mm. have you seen the local political news that has nothing to do with the environment about the the pollution on some of the local beaches? Oh, on some of the local beaches. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How how yeah. how the local uh, member of parliament, uh, one Selene Saxby, for North Devon, blamed it on sheep poo going yeah, into the poo. sea. Which yeah. I mean, it, like. She's remained silent on uh, on all the pollution that's been dumped throughout her tenure by a, a water company, a certain war company that was privatised by her party, and they failed to say anything about it for, for the entire time they've been in power. But yeah, there's 
quickly blame the sheep. Don't look at this problem. Look at this little problem. Yeah, sheep pooing on our sea. How dare they? Yeah, it's the second definitely. time the Tories have blamed sea pollution on, on the poo of wild animals. Well, anyway, like I say, we don't talk about politics here. No, um, no, no, no. But uh, we also don't talk about uh, loose connections to any sort of Marvel, DC, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars or Jurassic Park franchises either. But uh, like I say, if you want to get in contact, you can do so by uh, sending us an email to thenathistorycupboard at gmail.com, which is our email address. We're also on Twitter and on Facebook, where we got retweeted by Yolo Williams. We did. We did. Yeah. Uh, well, Absolutely just let's, let's be honest. Just yeah. Did. An amazing, uh, an amazing because if, job. Because if you do look at that picture, it's quite clearly not a man's hands. <laughs> I thought you'd done your nails and everything. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes yeah. they look like that. <laughs> on a Wednesday. Well, <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> so you can find us on Twitter, Facebook. We're also on Instagram as well. Uh, and we're also on TikTok. Our Twitter handle is at NH Cupboard, like I say, recently shared by one Yolo Williams, a fantastic uh, naturalist. Yes. So, yes, big thank you for that, Yolo. And remember, if you like what you've heard, you can leave a review, subscribe, and all that sort of good stuff on whatever podcasting platform you are listening to us on. Uh, we are also available on T-Mill as well for our fantastic T-shirts, hoodies, uh, all of that sort of merchandise stuff. And that just leaves me to say a big thank you to my co-hosts. Big thank you, uh, Drew. Thank you very much, Professor. It's been, it's been fun hearing the buzz from you. Uh, yeah, let's, just leave, it. Joke, let's just leave it there. Yep, yep. <laughs> and a big thank you to you as well, Aaron. What can I say except you're welcome? <laughs> <laughs> is that bringing it back to the sea theme that you have decided to oh just, my god i've yeah, just i've it. just come yeah it's come full circle this despite it being about wasps sunrise sunset the yep. cosmic ballet goes on <laughs> and there you go and a big thank yeah. you to you at home for listening and we'll see you next time here in the natural history cupboard bye i'm somewhat of a wasp myself there should be some sort of marvel Marvel pun with yellow jacket there, shouldn't there? Somewhere, but Ooh. we're not smart enough to do it, so it's up to you guys to think <laughs> of one. <laughs>